0: And open them up to 1 Samuel chapter 21. We've made it out of chapter 20. And remember, originally, I thought we'd only spend a week in chapter 20, and we spent four weeks. Lord willing, we'll get through chapter 21 quickly, although there is a big part of me that was tempted to go a little slower. But nevertheless, I would like to be done before Christmas, but you know my theory about Christmas. Come December 1st or December 31st or somewhere... And uh, uh, scientists will discover three more months in the year of 2020. So um, it's all relative at this point. First Samuel chapter 21, page 264 of your pew Bibles. And if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. The writer First Samuel writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 1. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? David said to Ahimelech, the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place, and then what do you? now then what do you have on hand?" Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly, women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be? Holy, so the priests gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you take that, take it, for there there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in, in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands. And, and made marks on the doors of the gates and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Ache said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to have behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as always, we ask you to open our hearts, our minds, our eyes, our ears, our hands, our feet, our mouths, that we would receive your word, understand it correctly, apply it to our lives, and we and those around us would be better for it. Bring your spirit into in, our very presence. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know if you know this or not, but Halloween will be here before you know it. At this rate, it may never arrive. But in theory, Halloween will be here in less than two months. And and with Halloween is, is the, the candy and the kids dressing up and everything like that. But, 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 but we, we, we love Halloween. It's the second largest holiday growing up. And I remember whenever I was a little kid, mom and dad didn't really invest in fancy costumes or anything like that. And we were a practical family. Besides the fact that I just didn't care about, you know, dressing up like a favorite superhero or anything like that. I was lazy. I wanted the candy. And whatever the bare minimum for getting the candy would, would be exactly what I would, I would do. But every year in the elementary school, I don't know if they still do this, uh, uh, they would have essentially a carnival where, where all the, the students would come in, the teacher would be dressed up, they'd have games, you get candy and prizes, all this sort of stuff, and they'd always have a haunted house. And in, in, in the back of the elementary school, there was the music hall and everything else. It was a little hallway, and they would divide it. You would go in one end, uh, make a U turn, come out the other, and that that was the the haunted house. And teachers would be dressed up, and and, and they, it would be dark, and they would scare little kids. Which, when you put it that way. Um, May explain some of my problems, but but you would go and and through the end, if you, you survive and, and uh, make it to the other end, you would get more candy and, and a friend of mine wanted to go through it, and I was never big on haunted houses but 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 I went right, and I was dressed as a karate kid. And the reason I was dressed like a karate kid was because my brother and I took karate. Right? It was already in the closet, right? so, so that's what I dressed up as. And, and you go through there and, and there's, there's things out there that, that scare you and there's the strobe lights and there's fake bats hanging over and all this sort of stuff. And then, then I got near the end of it and I let my guard down. And there's a little room. It's, it's got a, not really a hallway, but, but a few steps to get into the door. It's a perfect place that would be dark and a great place for, for someone to hide. And, and one of the teachers was dressed as a scary, evil witch. And I wasn't paying attention. I, I was talking to my friend over here. And before you know it, this evil, scary witch grabs my arm and starts doing that evil, scary witch cackle scared me to death so I did what anyone dressed as a karate kid would do I pulled my nunchucks out of my belt you didn't see that one coming did you it's a true story and I started whacking with all I had that witch she, she had one arm now she had both arms And she escorted me to the front and made it clear I was not to come back to the haunted house. If we had cell phones back then, she would have called my parents and uh, they would have came and picked me up. She was fierce. Come to find out, she was one of my teachers. And I had bruised her. The next day I discovered I had really bruised her quite, quite bad. I was scared to death. A witch had gotten a hold of me, cast a spell, and what was I to do but to defend myself and my good friend? Well, I think it's fair to say that if you are driven by fear, fear will feed some dark things in your life. And you will find yourself doing things that were not on the schedule, were unplanned, and maybe, to your surprise, you didn't think was even part of you. If you are driven by fear, you will discover you will do things that are unthinkable and even immoral. Just ask David in this chapter. You remember, we, we spent four weeks in chapter 20 where, where we saw Jonathan and his godly character in a, in a godless world, and a godless administration. We saw him demonstrate great character in a very troubling context. But then, in light of that, we see David here, a fugitive, no doubt, but, but, but a fugitive. And what we see is, is, is not the Jonathan sort of character we've, we, we've gotten used to, but in many ways, quite the opposite so verses 1 to 9, we see David in the town of Nob. Now, we need to see here David is a refuge, but really he's, he's a fugitive. Now, now, you're probably getting sick of the same story, right? Saul doesn't like David. David has to go run to save his life, right? And guess what? That's going to be the story for the next several chapters. Until Saul is dead, David is fugitive. But, but what is different from what we've seen previously and what we see now is that before, uh, David was a fugitive with the hope of coming back. Now we see there is no hope of David coming back into the administration. And so he is perpetually on the run and Saul will not stop until he is found. And so here he is. He makes his first stop since parting from Jonathan. He lands in a place called Nob and he wants two things in Nob. The first thing he wants is provisions. I think this makes sense. If you are on the run and scared for your life, you need to eat, you need to drink and you need shelter. And he comes looking for provisions. This starts here in verse 1. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? Now Nob has become at this time the city of the priests. This is mentioned in chapter 22. A lot of the events introduced here in chapter 21 We'll conclude in chapter 22. Now this happens after the death of Eli and his sons and the destruction of Shiloh. So you see here Ahimelech, the priest... Now, this is the first time we meet this guy. He's, he's the high priest, and he is the great-grandson of Eli. Remember, Eli is the priest who, when Hannah uh, uh, pre- cried out to the Lord to get pregnant, Eli is the priest then. You remember that Eli uh, practically raises and trains Samuel, but his sons were evil. So Ahimelech is of that line and is, is back into the priestly function. He is also the brother of Ahijah that we meet here. Now, Ahijah is not the first time his name is mentioned in 1 Samuel. He's mentioned back in chapter 14. He's a sort of chaplain and uh, strategist uh, uh, for for Saul. And notice that him, Ahimelech comes to David trembling, right? He's trembling before David. And he asks, why are you alone and no one with you? Remember, David is the son-in-law of the king. He's he's a captain or a general in the army. So if Anyone that is that high up, you expect them to have an entourage, security, uh, 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 personal assistance, everything else. I mean, imagine if someone from the federal government showed up here, even from the state government, high up, not you guys, but someone more important, were to show up here, you would not only meet that person, but their entire entourage with them. This person handles this, this person handles that, this person is going to pat you down before we continue the conversation, right? You, you're going to meet their entourage, but David shows up alone. Now, we discover later he's got a few guys with him, a little ragtag group, but he's essentially alone, not the entire group that he usually has with him. And, and Himalek's response is the same thing as the elders of Bethlehem when Samuel showed up. to to consecrate David. The fear is, Saul, your father-in-law, has sent you either to hunt me down or to deal with this city. He's mad at someone. No wonder he is trembling. But in verse 2, we get the deception of David. And David says to him, let me tell you why I'm here by myself. The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such a such place. Now, you talk about vague, isn't it? The king told me to do this or that. Don't worry about the details. Now, this is deceptive. He's asked about where is everyone, and, and it's deceptive at best. It's a lie at worst. Now, according to the Bible, deception is acceptable in times of war and maybe a few other circumstances. So in World War II leading up to D-Day, the Allies took plywood and balloons, essentially, and made a fake army, a fake invasions, to deceive the Germans. And as a result, the Germans were distracted, allowing for D-Day to happen right in war deception is is part of it and there's there's some who would say well david is is deceptive because this is a time of war i'm not sure that's quite right but there are some who would say this or think about a different circumstance you're minding your own business out, out somewhere which don't tell andy you're out somewhere and and this woman comes screaming fear in her eyes saying help me help me help me he's trying to kill me and she takes off running And behind her is a deranged man with a knife in his hand. And he comes to you and says, sir, ma'am, can you tell me where that woman went? What's your answer? Well, you know, it's the funny thing. I saw her go five leagues up, turn right, and you'll find her right there. Is that what you're going to do? No. You're going to make something up. I don't know what in the world you're talking about. I was just here swinging with my kids. Or if she went that way, you're going to say that she went that way. Is that deceptive? Yeah. But I don't think we should support deranged, knife-wielding, crazy people. You Call me pagan if you want, right? So some come to this text and say, well, there may be room for this. However, David is leaving an important information out. Why is David alone? What is this, this matter charged by the king? I'll tell you what the matter is. The king wants David dead. That's the charge from the king. He kind of left that little detail out, didn't he? And so he comes seeking refuge near the tabernacle. He comes to this priest and the words on his mouth are deception. And Ahimelech believes it. Why wouldn't he believe it being that David is a high official in Saul's administration? And so David then uses the the, the opportunity of deception for provisions, for supplies. And so he asks for five loaves of bread or whatever is here. Now, the the priest here shows that the the only bread available is what's called the show bread. And the show bread is sometimes called the bread of presence. And what this describes, you'll find it in the Mosaic books, the Leviticus and whatnot, is, is that... Every Sabbath, the priest would come and bring uh, twelve loaves of bread. Now, each loaf has three pounds of flour in it, so they, they, its not the bread you're getting a Kroger, okay? Um, no, this, this this is a large chunks of bread. And and you would take twelve loaves, representing twelve tribes of Israel, into, into the tabernacle, into the presence of God, and and there uh, uh, it would sit until the next Sabbath. You would remove the old, you would put in the new, and the priest eat the old bread. Right? So that bread is for them. And David comes needing bread. And so they, they say, Look, the only bread we have here is the show bread, the bread of presence. And, and David says, well, can I have some? I'm starving, and I really need it. Now, the priest then says, look, there's certain regulations. If you are in a real need, then we will make an exception to the regular ritual of the showbread for your good. Now, if this story sounds familiar, it's because you've been reading the Gospels. You remember the story in uh, Mark? Where uh, the disciples are uh, pulling wheat on the Sabbath because they're hungry. And who's there? Well, the Baptist deacons are there. And they start complaining, hey, the rules say, mama told me you can't do that on the Sabbath. I don't care how hungry you are, you'll have to starve. And Jesus says, look, the, the, the need trumps law. And that is that the law is case law, meaning that you have to see the circumstance, understand what's going on, and then to apply the principles of the law to that circumstance, right? And in our system of, 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 of justice is really based on this case law system from, from the Old Testament. And so in Jesus' circumstance, they are hungry, being hungry is bad, eating wheat even on the Sabbath is good. right. Made up rules keeping uh, uh, hungry people from eating is not good. And he uses this story as an example. David is hungry and there is bread to be eaten. Now, do you think God wants the hungry to go hungry? No. So in this circumstance, this unique circumstance, it is then allowed. So that is Jesus's point here. Now, we understand this in our culture, right? Uh, that that there, are, there may be the law or regulation or ordinance, but, but there may be exceptions to that that are unique. For example, uh, nine years ago, right around this time, it was either whenever my wife was having a Braxton Hicks or an actual labor. It all runs together at this point. Uh, it actually be nine years tomorrow that the little one was, was born. But I remember we, we, it was an hour-long drive to the hospital. And that's a long drive when you're in labor because uh, uh, from a husband's perspective, uh, if she's given birth, I like someone who knows what they're doing <laughs> to do it. So we got to get there fast, right? Now, in order to get there to Owensboro, he had to go through Fordsville. It's a country road all the way there, Highway 54. And I'm going about not Mach 90 at that point, through Fordsville. It's, it's a, literally a one-stop-like town, like Owington. And, and lo and behold, at the local Dollar General, in the middle of the night, like one o'clock in the morning, there are two police vehicles just sitting there. And I'm just driving as fast as I can to get there. And what does my wife say? You are breaking the law, slow down. We don't need to get pulled over while I'm in labor. What's my response? I hope we get pulled over. I want an escort to the hospital. <laughs> Why? Because when the police officer comes up, knocks on your window, and you roll it down, and you say, sorry sir, my wife has a medical emergency, can you help us? He's not going to say, well first, let me run your license, let me check this, and, you know, he's not going to take 20 minutes to ruin your day, he's going to say, this is a real emergency, I'll help you get to the hospital. We understand that, right? Now, fortunately those guys didn't do that, that would have been a better story, but nevertheless, But what is significant about this scene here in Nob is what is missing. David comes to Nob where the tabernacle is. But the Ark of the Covenant isn't there. The Ark of the Covenant is absence. So what you have with the priesthood is ritual, not worship. You have adherence without reverence. They present the bread to one who is not there. No wonder David chooses fear and deception over faith. But it isn't just provision he is seeking here. He is seeking protection. We see that here in verse Eight and nine. In verse eight, he he asks for a spear or a sword, and the reason he he gives for needing this this weapon is because of the king's business requires haste. Again, this is deceptive. Now, the haste here is again the king's business involves killing David. Right? That's why he is in a hurry. That's the king's business. He, he conveniently leaves that part out. Now, Ahimelech apparently doesn't catch this terrible lie. If David and his men have the time to, 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 to uh, 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 practice, to purify themselves by abstinence, they've had time to get a weapon. But he doesn't catch that, 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 that clear contradiction. And that is the problem with deception, isn't it? One lie will always lead to a cover-up of another lie which will then lead to a cover-up of a bigger lie, and eventually you can't keep your lies straight. For example, Several years ago, uh, I, was, I was eating with, with my, my family, uh, my parents in Ointon, And there's only like three restaurants. So, so we go and eat at, at the, it's called Scoopy doo No one calls it scoopy doo Everyone calls it Scooby-Doo because child of the 90s. And, and so we're eating at, at Scooby-Doo. I can't remember what it's called now. And, and the, the lady comes to, to, to get the order. And I'd say, I would like a bacon, lettuce, tomato sandwich. And please do not toast the bread. I don't like my bread toast. And why anyone will want to the toast their bread? I mean, if, if your bread is so bad you have to burn it to get taste, you're eating the wrong kind of bread. I don't understand why that's so difficult. I don't want my bread toasted with a BOT. I want to eat real bread. And so what I always say is, jokingly, don't toast my bread. I'm allergic to toast. <laughs> okay? Now, you get it. Because if you're allergic to toast, you're allergic to bread. Right? Now this lady didn't catch that joke. Well, she didn't say a word. We moved on with our conversation. She brings back the food. And I always say that because it's a joke. Now you won't forget not to toast my bread. Okay. She brings back the food. It's not toasted. I think everything's fine. She says, Sir, I'm it's just been bothering me. I'm really curious. I've never met anyone who's allergic to toast. (laughs) At that point... You can't correct the story, can you? At this point, the joke's on her. So I have to make up why I'm allergic to toast. So I tell her, when you take the bread and you put it in the toaster, those heat waves, something gets on the bread, and it makes me break out in hives and rashes, and and I have this weird fear about me. My my palpitations go up, my anxiety levels go up, and it just isn't safe for me or my family, so just don't toast the bread. Wow, never met anyone like that. A week later, we returned to that restaurant. I'd forgotten about those lies. And I wanted breakfast food. Got my pancakes, got my sausage, got my eggs and hash browns, and I ordered toast. She goes, but sir, I thought you're allergic to toast. I said, yeah, bring me a biscuit. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, lady, at some point, you're going to figure it out. I ain't allergic to toast, right? It was a good biscuit, but I wanted toast. So what Ahimelech does after this series of lies is he gives David a sword. Not just any sword, but Goliath. Don't you love this? Anyone read fantasy? Isn't this the part of the movie or the book you love? right whenever aragorn gets the the sword that that, that, that cut the ring from 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 uh, uh, what's his face right you love that when beowulf tears down the sword from grendel's mother's lair that, that the one that had killed giants right this mythical sword and, and he kills grendel's mother and grendel right I mean, we we love those sort of scenes right whenever whenever uh, High King Peter and, and, and Santa Claus gives him the, the, this great sword of Narnia, right? We love these scenes, and we get this here. In, in the presence of Tabernacle, is this sword being protected because of its, of its value? And and, 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 and now we, we see, what is it that David says there at the end of verse 9? There is none like that. There's nothing like this here sword. And this is typical of the ancient world. We'll find in chapter 31 that after Saul's death, the Philistines take Saul's armor and put it in the temple of Ashtaroth. But this is the the sword with the story behind it. And now the giant slayer is yielding the giant's sword, the one that killed him and chopped off his head. Well, well, this leads from David and Nob to the deception in Gath. and We must move quickly. It, it's, so, so he gets his, his necessities and he must flee again, arriving in Gath. Now, Gath is the homeland of Goliath. And a lot of people come here and say, why in the world, armed with the sword of Goliath's giant, or Gath's Giant, Goliath, would you show up in his hometown? Now, now you're just poking the bear. Uh, well, one reason, and this is a matter of debate, no one really knows, one, one of the reasons could be is that David and the Philistines, particularly this town of the Philistines, uh, have a common enemy, and that is Saul. Thus one wonders if what David is doing is seeking to hire himself to Achish as a type of mercenary. After all, in verse 15, notice David comes into the house of Achish. That language suggests that is precisely what David is wanting to do. Now, later in 1 Samuel, David does become a mercenary for the Philistines. I think a lot of people uh, miss this part of the Bible, that David actually uh, became an enemy of, of Israel, essentially. Uh, while Saul was king, working for the Philistines. So you get this in chapter 27. Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stint to his people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servants. And likewise in chapter 29, Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out uh, with me in the campaign, for I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. That seems to be what David is doing. However, immediately, David's reputation is given. And they even call him a king. That could be in derision or it could be in in honor. And, And they say, look, aren't you the guy, they sing the song, who didn't just kill thousands of our people, but ten thousands of our people? And naturally, David becomes afraid. Here is the great giant slayer, yielding the giant's sword in the home of said giants. And he was, is without protection. He is without an army. I think we all would join David in being afraid. And in response, what he does in verse 13 through 15, is he pretends, he deceives in pretending to be a madman. I think this is another one of those scenes that we we overlook in the Bible when we think about David. In the ancient Near Eastern culture, a madman was considered harbingers of evil and judgment, and thus most would just avoid people with such distress. They also felt it was bad luck to kill someone like this. And so David is spared by the king and his men. And so... He escapes Achish's sword by pretending to be a wild animal. Why does all this matter? Why is this story even in the Bible? What we get in these two vignettes, one in Nob, the other in Gath, is that David demonstrates a disturbing pattern of choosing fear over faith. This isn't the first time he's done this. In chapter 19, he uses his wife to deceive Saul. In chapter 20, he uses Jonathan to deceive Saul. Remember, he says, tell your father, I'm in Bethlehem. And that's why I'm not at the new moon. He deceives. In chapter 21, again, we see David preferring dishonesty to, uh, when afraid. And later in 2 Kings, the story of Bathsheba, what does David do whenever he sins? He deceives by covering up the crime. Just bring Uriah over here and and let them be together. And then when a child comes to that, everyone will know it's Uriah's. No one needs to know the truth. And when that doesn't work out, you know what? If I can just kill Uriah and I'll marry Bathsheba, the weeping widow, then, then no one will need to know. David has a disturbing pattern of choosing fear. And with this fear comes deception and dishonesty rather than choosing faith. Alistair Begg quoting from a little lesson he learned as a child when he says that you sow a thought, you reap an action. You sow an action, you reap a habit. When you sow a habit, you reap a character. You sow a character, you reap a destiny. This tendency of choosing fear over faith is not just a problem with David, is it? It perfectly describes the problem with modern American evangelicals. How many of us live in constant state of fear? The irony of Americans is that we are richer than any other generation more powerful than any other nation and yet so many of us live our lives gripped by fear we fear the direction of our nation we fear the demise of Christianity. We fear economic security. We fear a loss of political influence. We fear losing our communities. We fear genuine hardship and persecution. We fear anxiety and failure and rejection and hardships and everything else. We are constantly in fear. It's why we spend so much of our time, effort, and money on insurances and programs and, and, and problem-solvings and influencers and politics and politicians and lawyers and everything else because we live in a constant state of fear and if we spent as much time on our knees as we do worrying about things beyond our control would we as believers in christ not be better off when we are driven by fear we like david will find ourselves making poor decisions Like David, in fear, we have tendencies to deceive, to connive and destroy others all in pursuit of our own security. We will compromise our convictions and we will be motivated by ungodliness out of fear. We would do better if we choose to live by faith over fear. By the way, if you don't believe me from this text, this is precisely the lesson David must learn. Turn to Psalm 34 for me, if you will. Psalm 34 is written by David. As the subscript tells us of 34 is, this is a Psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, or that is, Ahimelech. uh, Or I'm sorry, it is Abimelech. uh, Achish. So that he drove him out and he went away. Uh, Achish and Abimelech are two names that are probably related. uh, Just two different languages. Notice what it is that David learns from this experience. I will bless the Lord at all times. Not one time in this chapter does he do it. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. By the way, that is the same mouth he was foaming and spitting from, wasn't it? My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and love many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous; his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears; he delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and Saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. See the difference? It's a huge difference, isn't it? What did he discover? If you are driven by fear, you will seek refuge in careers, in economics, in politics, in power, family, relationships, wealth, and influence. And there is no security found in any of them. But if you will seek your refuge, driven by faith in Christ alone, whom then we just sang shall I? Isn't that what Jesus says in Matthew 11? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. I will give you rest. and I suspect here, right now, six months of international pandemic is driving us to the point of break. Right now, our home life is not what we want it to be. Right now, the insecurity of our career, of our jobs, of our income, keep us up at night. Right now, we are driven by fear to places we'd rather not go. Will we choose fear or will we choose faith? By the way, did you notice what David said here in chapter 34? It says on the one hand, there is nothing to fear if you take your refuge in Christ. On the other hand, Christ gives refuge to all who fear him. Isn't that incredible? It sounds contradictory, doesn't it? The question isn't, do we fear? But to whom should we one will bring the insecurity of life. The other will bring the security of the gospel. In fact, I think I can prove it to you. Notice here that if we go back to verse 9 of 1 Samuel. Verse 9. David is in Nob. And where is, what is in Nob? The tabernacle. Here he stands in Nob. Next to the tabernacle, which is supposed to represent the presence of God among his people. And what does David require? A sword. And what again does he say of that sword? He holds it in his hands. He says, there is nothing like it. That's a man who thinks he has nothing to fear now. David's son, many years from this moment will stand next to, not next to the tabernacle, but he'll stand right next to the temple. They both have the same function. One is permanent, one is temporary. But Solomon stands next to the temple, and there he dedicates it, and he uses the same language as David. And it's the, from what, I, what I've discovered, it's the only two places this language is used. But Solomon's focus is different. In 1 Kings 8, he says, O Lord God of Israel, There is none like you. See the difference? See the difference? David can hold a sword with significance in it. He places all of his hope and trust in it, and in the next story, it fails him. Solomon can stand in the presence of God and confess, there is none like you. And it never fails him. That is the good news of the gospel. Jesus is enough. If only we would run to him, especially in moments like today. Let's pray.